0: If you're listening to this episode on the day it comes out, this is a big, big day in America, because it's election day. And I don't think it's an understatement to say that this is the most important election that those of us who have the privilege to vote in will be voting in, at least it is in my lifetime, because this election may determine if you or I get to be able to vote in the next one. So if you're listening to this and have not yet voted today, turn us off and please, please go vote. We need everyone's voice in these elections as the alternative may be that our voices no longer matter. And now with that PSA, I'm turning this over to Sarah for some (laughs) hope. Love being the beacon of sunshine right now. Yes, in fact,
1: I'll take it though, because we specifically wanted to release the conversation that we had with Steve Phillips today on election day, like you said, because it may be a day where you like it sounds like me, Sasha, needs some hope. This is the first time, as you'll hear me say in the podcast, that I've actually gotten hope in a long, long time, thanks to his book, How We Win the Civil War. And so in today's conversation, we're going to discuss the idea that the Civil War never really ended. Yep, get ready. And also how we can finally win it with some really concrete ideas and action items for all of us at the end of the episode. So it may be exactly what you need to hear today on election day or maybe tomorrow or maybe every day past that point when we need to keep fighting for all of us. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Steve, would you please introduce yourself for our audience? I'm Steve
2: Phillips, the author of How We Win the Civil War, my second book after writing Brown is the New White, and I'm the founder of Democracy in Color, which is a multiracial political media organization.
1: I'm so excited to speak with you today, because if you had been a fly on my wall, you would have heard me reading your book and being like, this is amazing. You have to read this. Honestly, this is the first time I've actually, you know, being in this work and living through the world over the last few years, it's harder Right. And it, it takes a lot to maintain hope. Your book, this is the first time I've felt this sense of hope, like deep hope in a very long time. So I thank you very much for writing your book, How We Win the Civil War. To lay a little groundwork, you know, you set up your book so that the reader understands the foundation that we're built on today, which is that the Civil War never really ended, as in, You know, we never really fully uprooted the notion that this country was built by and for rich white men. And and you say, and I'll quote this part, but it's the clearest proof that the South never surrendered is that they continued to wage a violent and bloody civil war long after the cessation of armed hostilities. And I never thought of it this way, but it makes a lot of sense. And you have a load of support in the first half of your book. And I find your arguments and perspective like 100 percent spot on. I can't find any holes
0: Yes. Well, let me just jump in for a second because I'm also, and our listeners who have listened for well know this, but I'm the granddaughter of a Civil War historian. And so, from my perspective, I've always thought, you know, sort of what came out of Reconstruction, sort of the Black codes, the policing of Black bodies. We talked about this on our podcast as sort of a direct line from anti Black laws from that period to Trayvon Martin to George Floyd to everything that's happening today. And, you know, that. So I believe this to be true for a really long time, so I'm so excited to talk to someone else who not only firmly believes this to be true, but really lays out the support for that. But this is still, I think, a hugely controversial or a difficult idea for a lot of people. So what sort of pushback have you gotten you know, to this book, and in particular to this part of your thesis?
2: Well, yeah, it's a difficult concept for people to grasp. I'm doing a number of these interviews today, and people, someone's all like, "Well, didn't the Civil War end right in 1865?" Which is kind of like the given. I actually did a, a talk with Congressional Progressive Caucus recently, like last week or whatnot, and I was pointing out to them and thanking them for the work around the um, January 6th hearings and the importance of making this record and trying to have some accountability, but also realizing that a lot of the things that we're grappling, I mean, the Justice Department itself was created to deal with the rise of the Ku Klux Klan after the Civil War. The oath of office that every member of Congress takes to defend uh, the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, the and domestic part is about, is the Confederates. They didn't want sneaking back into the government. And so there's a, that's, we'd still say that, you know, today. And then one of the things that was so fascinating writing the book is in trying, because originally it started out as a, as a theoretical concept. The publisher, New Press, came to me and said, Do you want to write a second book? And I was like, Yeah, maybe we should use the Civil War as a metaphor for what this current political moment is. And then, 18, eight months later, people carrying the Confederate flag, wearing sweatshirts saying MAGA Civil War, January 6, 2021, stormed the Capitol to stop the peaceful transfer of power. It's like, well, it's not so <laughs> theoretical anymore. And then when I began to get into the history and telling the story, I mean, everybody obviously knows Lincoln was assassinated. I didn't even know exactly when and exactly why. So the surrender of the, at Appomattox of the Confederates that end the Civil War took place on the Sunday. That Tuesday, Lincoln gives a speech talking about limited voting rights for African-Americans. John Wilkes Booth is there, hears the speech, tells somebody that means N-word citizenship that's the last speech he'll ever give. And then Friday of that week sneaks into Ford Theater and shoots Lincoln in the back of the head. So that's not surrendering. Right? And so you just take that. And then what that resulted in was Andrew Johnson being ascended to the presidency, who was very sympathetic and supportive of the Confederates, opposed the 15th Amendment, opposed the Civil Rights War amendments. And then you have 1876, the hays Tilden compromise, the North gave the South back to the slaveholders. And so then, for 100 years after that, we had legalized racial segregation, legalized white supremacy within this country. I and mean, I didn't realize when I wrote my first book that we, everybody thinks, oh, Brown versus Board of Education, and, and, you know, it eliminated legalized segregation. It only eliminated racial segregation in education, and that was uh, 54. So it was completely legal all the way up to 1964 to racially discriminate. In housing, in hiring. And so all of the different racial inequality, racial wealth gap we, we have was government sanctioned, on top of which you take the GI Bill, where you basically gave billions of dollars to white people. And so there's a very clear through line. So if you want to say anything ended, you could only really say it ended in 64 or 65. And then we can debate what that past 50 years has actually been looked like. But when I started to make the case, I was like, oh, it's true. We have, in fact, they never stopped fighting. We have, in fact, been engaged in this war all the way since the 1860s.
1: Oh, my gosh. Which is just 50, 60 years ago, right? Within people's lifetimes. This is not when when we hear the conversations with people and they're like, but slavery ended so long ago. Like, there are still a lot of people who cannot understand how recent and how current these forces are. You know, but for the listeners, for the purposes of this conversation, you know, those of you listening to our show, we've talked about this now for three and a half years, but we all agree, we're still fighting white supremacy. And so the second half of your book you know, is the great outline of the points that we need to win this civil war. And just you know, to summarize really quickly, it's the level five leaders, it's the strong civic organizations, data-driven plans, and playing the long game. And you review successes, right? Unexpected successes in states like Georgia, Virginia, Arizona, smaller enclaves like San Diego and Houston. And that's the point of hope. So my question for you is, these are political successes that you're talking about, right? Because then you can shape policy. Is that, when we think about winning the war, what percentage of it is really just political control and shaping the rules? And how much work is required to teach like individual hearts and minds? So many people personalize racism and the work towards anti-racism to uprooting individual beliefs to realize that all humans are humans and worth giving equal rights to. Like, How do you approach those two buckets Well, I fundamentally focused
2: on the control of our society, which is elections and government and public policies. And so, you think Martha King used to talk about, you can't legislate attitudes, but you can legislate behavior. And I used to joke to friends of mine that, you know, I don't care if you call me the N-word if I have my 40 acres and a mule, right? And so, that fundamentally, I think, is the major point. And I think that the Attitudinal, the hearts and minds piece. I also think flows from getting into positions of power. I don't know if you remember. There was this when Obama was president. He was speaking at I think it was in Ohio at a school, and then I don't know how this came up, but in the Q no, and A, no, there's a Q and A. That's what it is. The guy stands up, and says, "My daughter missed school to be here today." It was a white guy, and then Obama's like, "Goes, oh no, does she need a note?" And so he, like, wrote this note, says, please excuse her absence from school today. She was with me, Barack Obama. And that was on the local news, et cetera. I think that it's things like that that change people's perception. And in terms of reducing the fear and raising the acceptance, I really believe that. So, you know, my friends always joke that no conversation goes by without without mentioning Jesse Jackson, (laughs) which was my Formative political experience in the Rainbow Coalition. Jesse Jackson was president in 84 and 88. In 89, Virginia elected its first governor, Doug Wilder. New York elected um, David Dinkins mayor. I really believe that having to confront the prospect of a President Jackson changed the psychology to make it more acceptable for people to think that, oh, well, we could have a black governor. And so I think it's some of those things are some of the interplay, but I think it's an outgrowth of the political power piece will get the hearts and minds uh, results. So getting a person like Stacey Abrams to be as influential and prominent as she is, you'll have do more to get acceptance of people who don't look the traditional white male leadership norm to say, oh, a leader, a brilliant person, a strategist could be somebody who's a dark skinned natural haired, not super thin black woman. And so that in practice, I think, it's at those other pieces. But the fundamental point is we've got to get people into positions of power. We have to win these positions and then reorient what public policies flow from that.
0: I love that you were talking about Stacey Abrams just now because I've been doing this unintentional, really deep dive into Georgia politics around the midterms because not only is Stacey Abrams, you know, about to change people's perceptions in a lot of ways and who she's focusing on in terms of you know, her voter base and all of that is very different than Georgia has sort of seen in the past. But also you have Herschel Walker and Warnock, right, running against each other in a Senate race where you have two black men running for a Senate seat in Georgia, which I mean, and you know, I've listened to too many sort of politicos try and break down like how that vote could go or, you know, are we going to have the evangelical right still side with Herschel Walker or not? You know, I'm so curious to hear sort of your thoughts on Georgia right now, because when we're thinking about the long game, you know, I think about Georgia as one of those states where this is the long game and and how we've seen it change over time. So I'd love to hear what you have to say about that.
2: Yeah, no, I think Georgia is the flashpoint of a lot of this, you know, been a fundamental state in the Confederacy and this whole country's history, place you know slavery was held where Margaret Mitchell, the author of Gone with the Wind is from. So it has this very, I mean, Gone with the Wind is set in Georgia, right? So it has this very fundamental place within our society and the birthplace of Martin Luther King. And so it's not, I mean, not inconsequential is in cons- too not strong a word, if that makes any sense at all, is that it's very fundamental to this country's arc and trajectory that you have the man who is literally standing in the shoes of uh pulpit of Martin Luther King Jr. Running for and elected and serving in the United States Senate off of this work within Georgia. So it really shows what is possible and then what the transformative implications of that are. So everything, anything good that has happened in the past two years out of the United States Congress is because of the work in Georgia and the election of Warnock um, and also Ossoff. And so that shows the transformative and systemic reach and influence. I mean, you care about climate change and that you think there's anything good in the climate bill that passed, that goes back to Georgia and Warnock. And so that's substantively and symbolically reflective, winning in those places actually do. But it's not easy, is the other piece, I and mean, is that Warnock spent $90 million and barely won. And so the opposition is ferocious, the voter suppression is extensive, and uh, all of the other systemic institutional forces weigh against it. And I do try to talk in the book about, I mean, it's not accidental that we've never had a Black woman governor. It's not because there haven't been smart Black women. There's all of the different institutional as well as psychological barriers around what leadership looks like. So the mountain is very, very, very steep. But it's also why it's so significant if we're able to scale it in a place like Georgia. And then that can hopefully then give, well, and it will, I think we're on the course towards it, but that's why I want to accelerate Is why I wrote this book is that what people don't appreciate is that Texas demographically and statistically is actually more promising than Georgia is that there's, we lose in Texas, like Biden lost by like 600,000 votes. There's 4 million people of color who didn't vote. And so that's pretty easy math if you can focus on it in terms of being able to get those folks actually out to vote. Texas is 38% white in terms of its state. The majority of people are Black and Latino in Texas. So all of that is before us, if we can see it, lean into it, invest in it, and prioritize it. Now, so that's the purpose really I want to, why I'm trying to get through with this book.
1: It makes so much sense about that process and harnessing it. And as part of know, the steps you talk about having detailed plans to how do you engage voters of color who've historically been oppressed and where systems make it hard for them to get engaged in voting. But can we talk a little bit then about the story of the Montgomery Women's Political Council? Because I think you point out in the book, and I think it's true, you know, people think that Rosa Parks gave up her seat and there was a boycott and it was successful, not realizing the length of the boycott, not realizing the extent to which planning went into it. And you really lay it out. Can you talk about it on the podcast a little bit about all the planning behind what made the bus boycott a success? Because I think we can then extrapolate onto some of these other things about voter engagement too.
2: Yeah, that was very interesting to learn about and to try to share. And I also try to reference it in one of my muses through the whole book was Isabel Wilkinson and her book Cast, and which I just found to be amazing work, but also in terms of the analogies and things that she references. And so she talks in there about we are all actors on a stage that was set long before we arrived, and that the roles are reserved for we know who is center stage, who is sidekick, who is in the chorus, et cetera. And so in this country, we've had 46 presidents, all of them men, 45 of them white men. So the role of president is reserved in this country basically for a white man, just is how we've proceeded well, I would argue that the role of data geek is seen as you know young white guy who's you know fairly you know fluent with you know computers or whatnot, and that is what then led me to the piece. where the role of data geek is not a black woman in Montgomery, Alabama, in the 1950s before they even had you know uh, personal computers. And so, and I actually gave, a, I, gave I talked about this in a, a speech I gave. This is like imagine you had to organize a carpool for Ten people, and so you'd have to think about it. you can't fit in one car. And so it's like, how many people? Where are they need to go? What time do you have to pick people up? And then, and so they start thinking about that logistically. How do you organize that? And then it's like, well, imagine you had to organize a carpool for your entire block. That's a whole other thing. Where's everybody going? Where do you? you know, how do you do that? Now imagine it for fifty thousand people. And that's what the Montgomery bus boycott was. And so that's what they talk, the Montgomery, the Women's Association there talks about how they had calculated it all out and they were like, we need uh, 54,000 flyers. So that's this many reams of paper that we will then cut into thirds and then we will hand out all across the city to tell people when exactly it started and where to go. And then there's the whole piece around the transportation system. Where do you go? And so if you wanna, if you're gonna have a carpool, where do you get picked up? What time do you have to be there? And they had coordinated all of this out, and they had multiple pickup points and pickup times. That people would go through, and then they, where you would go to fill up for gas. And it's a remarkable organizing and you know data and extraordinarily sophisticated operation that is completely like lost to history. Right, the, the narrative is Rosa Parks didn't give up her seat, and then the next day we had you know freedom. The bus boycott went on for an entire year. So 365 days of this. And so that is also gets, you know, this point around long game, tenacity, et cetera. So there are lots of examples of this in terms of expertise and sophistication that don't get valued or appreciated. And they don't get valued or appreciated because they don't fit the mold of who we think experts and, you know, geniuses are.
1: It's so true. And the w- way when we think about it, the way that you described it, I hope everyone listening can sort of imagine like when we talk about sacrifice, when you talk about doing something different, you know, it's not glamorous stuff that you post on social media. It is a day to day change in behavior. It is cutting flyers into thirds. It's like it's doing the actual little things that lead to big change with tenacity, with organization, with all the things that that you talk about. Because when you just talked about that long game, you know, I think that is also important in a country that we're in right now. We tend to operate in these four year cycles and it's like we move in this direction, then we move in this direction. And we're constantly doing this back and forth. Unlike Misasha and I, both with our Asian background, I think about China and the long game that they have always historically played. And that's something that we have talked about a bit So when you mentioned, you know, and we've talked about it in this context, too, but again, that long game, the presidential election of 1876, where they like brokered the trade to give control back to the South, you know, the Rutherford B. Hayes win and then that sort of stuff. I mean, I think how I guess is it important to to think about the long game?
0: And I want to add, too, because I think we've recently seen the long game. Come through in a very different format with the Dobbs decision, right? And 50 years of really strong organizing, sort of by evangelicals and the Republican Party in certain ways, really bound together first over segregation and wanting to hold on to segregation. And then we're like, wait, we need a topic that's going to bind us all together. Let's do abortion. But you saw that very organized long game over 50 years to get from Roe to Dobbs. And so, you know. I would love to hear more about that and how why this to sarah's point we have such a short-term memory in this country and i think we see dobbs and we're like oh no you know this is throw up our hands and like we need to change it back immediately but that's not how this really works
2: right yeah i mean Dobbs is the most recent and painful example of their long game the attacks on the voting rights are another example, right? And the New York Times had a piece about there's been a 50-year assault upon Voting Rights Act ever since it was first created. And they've had this, you know, perspective around staying in the game, funding the different parts of it. Every, so John Roberts, Supreme Court Justice John Roberts, got his start in the Justice Department under Reagan in the 80s, trying to eviscerate the Voting Rights Act. And so it's stayed at it all these different, you know, points in time. So that is, that's also part of another example is can you find the people who are going to be at it for the long term and back them? And so that's one of the core messages I lay out in the book, because I talk about this concept of level five leaders, people who are very self-effacing, but very driven, disciplined, organized, and effective, and tenacious. So every single one of the places, the case studies that I lay out in the book, have the same leadership core has been at it for a decade. And they have methodically and meticulously continued and steadily built, and they continuously increase their power and their influence. And that's not to say how people think about it, but there are people who are oriented that way and are willing and committed to doing that. And so part of the work is to find those people and back those people. I mean, so that uh, we were talking before we got started, right, in terms of you know, my wife's situation and her, her having cancer and us reflecting back on our own you know, lives and what we have done has had an impact. And what we've both felt, my wife has, you know, said very, we had this whole thing about you know, what brings you joy. She says, I, knowing that Stacey Abrams is out in the world brings me joy. Among the most meaningful work that we have done was partnering and supporting Stacy 10 years ago and so that work from 2012 and sticking with her through the ups and downs and helping her to continue to expand the influence and the impact, resulting in flipping the entire United States Congress, moving trillions of dollars to the American people, passing this conference climate legislation, that's tied to finding someone who was in it for the long game and had those uh, characteristics. And I do think that that's something that individuals can do is that you don't have to have a massive platform, et cetera. You can find these leaders and support them in ways big and small. Tell your friends about them. And you can you know, do invite them to speak to different groupings that you're connected to and start to build the, the kind of called cocktail party cachet about, oh, so-and-so is you know a genius. But there's lots of leaders who are like them. So many of the people who I lay out of in the book, you know, Michelle Tremillo in Texas and Tram Nguyen in Virginia and Andrea Guerrero in San Diego, people like that. So...
1: I mean, that was a perfect transition because what I wanted to ask you next was about this idea of like, let's get tangible here, right? You mentioned the people in the book, but, you know, I think just to set the stage a little, you you talk about the silent sanctioning of white domestic terrorism and then even explicit sanctioning in the case. I had no idea this 2018 Mississippi state senator, Cindy Hyde-Smith, talking about her friendship with like a cattle rancher and being like, if he invited me to a public hanging, I'd be in the front row, like as if it's entertainment. Are you kidding? And so not only did that section force me to really like sit and imagine the terror of people talking like this and also people actually being intimidated into not voting like this, which is what the public hangings were for, but it's really clear based on the fact that that was 2018. I mean, it's only gotten louder and more explicit, the explicit and silent sanctioning of white terrorism of white supremacy is continuing. So if there's one area leading into call it the midterm elections, 2023 and 2024, that you'd like more white people to speak up against and about to make the most impact? What would that be?
2: I do think one of the things that's most present in the conversation now is this whole you know, nonsense of CRT and critical race theory, and that it's simply a, the latest attempt to whitewash history And so the traditional progressive response has been say, oh, no, it's not actually being taught, et cetera, et cetera. But what we need to do is to call it out and say that, no, these people who are attacking CRT, who are banning books, are trying to literally whitewash history. And we need more people and more white people, frankly, to speak up and say, no, we have to look at, squarely face the actual history of this country. Because so much of that is what shapes the current reality that we're in. The racial wealth gap was created and maintained by public policy within this country. And so the failure to study that in this effort to advance these whole book banning and the CRT attacks, et cetera, is a very pernicious and dangerous reality. And there's insufficient voices speaking up about it, and there are insufficient voices speaking up about it on the merits in saying that, no, we actually do need to understand the role that white people have played in this country, the role, how much this country's battle has been about establishing and maintaining the country as a white country. I mean, it was the literal definition of citizenship. You had to be a free white person from 1790 up until the 1950s. That was the law within this country upheld by the Supreme court. They are saying to these Asians in the 1920s who wanted to become part of the country. No, you can't become part of the country because you're not white. That's what the law says. So we need white people to speak up on this issue. And so I would say that that's one of the most current things in terms of what's happening in the, the ongoing. And I guess also is the, uh, there's all these attacks on crime. And so we, I just did a segment yesterday with Jonathan Capehart on, the, on his Sunday show about this issue and how crime is for almost 400 years has been a way of telling white people to be afraid. And so there are some clips from that that I might point people to as well.
0: I love that you said both CRT and crime because those are two topics that we've talked a lot about on this podcast and that I personally feel very strongly about. So I think we've also talked about how the voices, you know, who are really loud and sort of have this concept of CRT, which is not actually what CRT is. They're very loud, and they and they've been playing the long game for a really long time. They're now getting elected to school boards. They're very, and those are the local elections that people sometimes forget to focus on because we're so focused on you know a national election or the president, you know, a sort of role. But you know, along those lines, right? When people are thinking about what they can do, and June Jordan talks about not wanting to be independent or and you mentioned earlier you know finding the people finding those level 5 leaders you know to support because it doesn't have to be you out there it can be you supporting this leader for the long game right so what are the organizations and people in this country that you see as those key sort of levers for change and of course you know Stacey Abrams and Fair Fight is up there but where else should we be giving our support
2: so, so starting with the places that are in the book where there's 5 case studies that lift up level five leaders in key organizations. So Virginia, Georgia, Texas, Arizona, um, San Diego. So people can see those. those. So, you know, Tram Nguyen and New Virginia Majority, Michelle Tremillo in Texas Organizing Project, Montserrat Redondo with One Arizona in Arizona, Um, the organization Lucha in Arizona, and um, Andrea Guerrero and Alliance San Diego. So those are key. Those are the hallmark places that I focus on. There are other places that haven't yet had the winds but around the cusp or could, and particularly because of the demographic revolution being putting them at a tipping point, so particularly Florida and North Carolina. And in Florida, in particular, they're somewhat further along the developmental process. So Andrea Mercado is in Florida, and there's an organization, Florida New Majority. they call Florida Rising now, actually, they changed their name this year. They're doing a lot of the same work that is happening, that civic engagement work that's taking places in these other states. And so that's a key place. And people continue to underappreciate the potential of Florida, which is another place that was like super, super closely decided, and still lots of people of color who aren't voting. And so that could actually flip. And Florida is very much more in play than people appreciate and realize. So those are some of the places I think that I would highlight and direct people towards.
1: That's good to know about Florida because I had just about given up all hope there too. But it's really good to know that there are, especially, I mean, I do see a lot more demographic shift happening in that state. A lot of people from the Northeast are moving down there. So, I mean, that is another place that constantly makes headlines and makes you want to like cry, but that's good to know them and we'll look for them as well.
2: Oh, no, we were, we. I mean, Andrew Gilman lost that race by, DeSantis won by like less than 1%, like 30,000 votes out of like 10 million people. And people can say, well, we keep losing, we keep losing by a close amount. The Democratic vote in Florida gubernatorial almost doubled between 2014 and 2018. And so that's not a lack of progress. You have to see that as progress and then keep going and keep building on it. And so that's, this. I remember, I so distinctly remember the conversation I had with Stacey Abrams in 2018 after she decided to, well, not concede, but to acknowledge that she wasn't going to be governor. And I was like, well, we just keep going. We keep doing the work. We then try to impact the 2020 election and then keep going towards running again. And so she kept going and we did Defeat Trump in Georgia, and we did flip those Senate seats, and that you know she's very much in the mix to actually take that gubernatorial election. So Florida's a similar problem. You just you have to see the benchmarks that we're making the progress, and then continue to move forward. You can't just say, oh, "Well, we didn't win." But if you get a hundred votes one year and two hundred votes the next year, you can't just say, "I'm not winning." That's progress, and you have to build upon that.
1: I appreciate that a lot, also because I think through this conversation, I can even almost viscerally feel the shift going from these one-on-one conversations where I have to, you know, those people on social media who are like, you know, what do you mean? They were just taking a walk in the Capitol. They're fine. Or the people who sort of really are saying, well, there's so many more votes on the Democratic side. There must be fraud. There's no way this many people have turned out. Instead of engaging in that level, we can sort of pull it back up to this huge civic engagement level and really get involved in the process of making change, as opposed to really in this minutia of one-on-one battles with people, which really just serves to destroy the psychology and the relationships we can potentially have with people.
2: Right. And all i guess, to, to what kind of society do we want? Is this a, Do we believe this is a democracy and should be a democracy? And if it's a democracy, shouldn't everybody participate? And I even had to challenge myself to kind of like writing these different, like, you know, prescriptions for change, what things could be, and then I, so I actually wound up putting in the book, talking about like Peru as mandatory voting, and the, the part even myself I was kind of like, that's a little radical, but I was like, we have mandatory taxes, right? We think that's an important thing for everybody to do, so we require you to do it. So if that's a valuable social function, shouldn't we require everybody to vote? Is that also? So but we don't proceed from the standpoint. That we want everybody to vote and we're letting the rights views around voter fraud and stopping people from voting have more saliency and currency than it deserves. The starting point should be, do we want everybody to vote? And if so, how do we go about doing that? And so that's, I think, also how we can start to change the conversation and reframe it in ways that will lead towards longer benefits.
1: Do you think speaking of the long game and answering and addressing questions like that, you know, I think it's very clear when we talked about the Republican and the right wing view about the long game that they have and and you know maintaining white supremacy, do you feel like there is enough of a at this point, you know, in our country, we have two major political parties. There's not been a really viable third-party option that has crept up yet. But so then on the Democrat side, do you think there is enough? of a long game. Do you think there's enough of a clear, what do we want as opposed to what do we not want at this stage?
2: No, there's not a long game on what we want. And there's not a long game around how we get there and how the two interrelate. And so, you know, again, back to Stacey, who's the preeminent leader, she wrote a piece, a long piece in the New York Times, called how to turn your red state blue. And she says in there, it may take 10 years, do it anyways. And so she lays out this basic prescription, increasing voter participation, civic engagement, et cetera. But that's not how most political money gets spent. That's not how the biggest democratic and progressive donors think. It's still a lot about television ads and trying to find whatever clever, you know, innovation they can do rather than the nitty gritty work of building organizations that are community based and do the work to turn people out to get them to vote. That's not the standard operating procedure. That's not how the vast majority of the actually billions of dollars that get spent. So there's that. And then there's the interplay of that reality with how the public policy agenda unfolds. And then are you pursuing a public policy agenda that speaks to and inspires and mobilizes the growing new majority electorate? Majority of people under 18 are people of color. And so what's the public policy? So I was quite pleasantly surprised to see both the background of decision around the uh, student debt relief piece, that the White House ultimately did decide to lean into that and lean into it more heavily because they wanted to send a message to young people and people of color that they were actually acting on their behalf. So that's an example of the intersection of public policy and political change, but it's not the driving force. It's still far too, you know, short-term, next election, what's the tactical buzzword you can say, rather than building this longer-term piece. So that remains the one of the biggest challenges that we face. And so that's why I wrote a book, to try to point a different path.
1: <laughs> I appreciate that. What else have we not talked about or not asked about that you think is important to share?
2: Well, I think that just maybe to lean further in this piece about the backing the leaders and the level five leaders, and then a multiplicity of ways that can be done. And so it's almost... It's almost like I think people should think about even in their local area or some of the folks that we mentioned. It's almost like kind of can you kind of I don't know if adopt is the right word, but sponsor this type of a person and kind of be their backer, track their work, share their work, get on their mailing list, share their work with your networks. Can you and then to the extent you know you, one is able, can you like check in on them? Like, how are these folks doing in terms of we making sure that their totality of experiences you know are they able to. Take vacations and tend to their families and get rested so that they can stay in the game for the long term. So, it's I think finding people and then really digging in to back them in a multiplicity of ways over the long term. That I think is a very critical role that's necessary for everybody to play.
1: So, how does one find them, right? I'm in Denver right now, and a lot of people are surrounded by people like themselves, right? Who may not be engaged in civic work. You happen to have circles because you have been involved in this. That you had the opportunity to meet and sponsor Stacey Abrams over a decade ago. Like how does the layman start to filter who they can believe in as a level five leader?:
2: I think I would actually think about starting with some of the people who are featured in the book, because they have done it and they have the track record, but they also have networks. And so it's kind of asking them, do they know because they go to conferences, they' are part of different you know coalitions and organizations. And so, do they know somebody? in your area who they think is doing a similar kind of work and has a similar kind of potential. But I think that that would be a good vetting entity. And then maybe even researching the organizations that are in there and seeing what kind of networks they're part of. So there is a network community change, which is a coalition, a constellation of community-based organizations across the country that a lot of the groups in the book are part of. So who else within community change is in your particular area? And that's actually a very particular one. I think I would suggest people look at um and draw from uh, you can find more local people to support through that network.
1: That's fantastic. Thank you. Anything else at all?
2: October 18th, book comes out. Spread, tell your friends and family. <laughs> so
1: <laughs> yes. All right. If people want to find you, find your work, find your book, where can they go?
2: Democracyandcolor.com. That's the organization we do a we do our podcast every two weeks. We do a weekly newsletter that i write and our team puts together in terms of articles and information and so you can sign up for that news get on our mailing list at democracyincolor.com and stay in the loop
1: you've just listened to the dear white women podcast with your hosts sarah and misasha yes we're on social media and yes you can hire us to do talks about our book but the biggest thing don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials head over to dearwhitewomen.com to get on the list